O Lord our God, You are high above the heavens, exalted above all things, creator of all things, and so we give You praise this day, Lord. We thank You for the Word that You have revealed to us, Lord God. The, uh, our faith is a revealed faith. We do not discover it out of our own wisdom. But the God of heaven has made Himself known to us and informs us and reveals to us that which pleases you and that which is abhorrent in your sight so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've called us. So we thank you for that, Lord God. We pray for various missionaries around the world, Lord. As uh, I know that there was a, within our network of churches, there was a commissioning service of people going on international missions and they are being sent out joyfully going, leaving home and family to joyfully serve you in another country, in another culture, that the gospel might be made known. We pray for their safety. We pray for their encouragement. We pray for their endurance. We pray for those who are going to countries where they are not welcome, um, where they have to uh, hide their identity, and we do not even know the country they are going to, and their names are not published. We give you praise that they are joyfully going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have never heard it. Lord, I pray for our our own missions here, Lord God, that you would help us as a church be um, reaching out. Um, there's a lost and dying world. We can begin in our homes, but you've also called us to to go out. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us to get uncomfortable if need be. Lord, and to go to cultures and places that are different than ours and share the gospel. So, Lord, I believe that we can do two things at the same time. We can stay here in our community and preach the gospel because this community needs it. And we pray that Pine and Strawberry and the Rim Country, that you would open people's hearts to the message of the gospel here. We also pray at the same time, we can also go to other places and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we can do both and. So help us, Father God, to be mission-minded. And so open our hearts and minds now to your word. Let us celebrate your goodness. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so you'll want to be turning in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse, verse, we're going to begin at verse 18. We're going to go all the way through chapter 4 verse 5. Um, but just by way of introduction, you don't really need to be a Bible scholar or have some advanced degree in theology to recognize that the Corinthian church is a mess. I mean, really, when we think about the Corinthian church and we, we, we think probably one of the first things that comes to mind is, yeah, they got problems. Corinth was a commercially important city. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was an educated city. And when the gospel came to this important, cosmopolitan, educated city and the people were joined with Christ and salvation, they brought much of their pagan baggage with them into the church. We shouldn't be surprised at that. When anybody comes um, to a relationship and comes to faith in Christ, they're going to bring all sorts of strange ideas with them. That's just part of being a new Christian. And so the Corinthians bring some of these pagan and these pagan ideas with them into the church. The problem isn't that that was unexpected. The problem is that they stayed that way. They never matured. They continued to be infants. And Paul says, I know you're infants because there's divisions among you. They're not infants because they didn't know theological terms or they didn't know how to answer every apologetic question that came their way. They were infants because they were divisive in their pride. That's how Paul says, I know you're immature. Not because you don't know some of these, you know, really deep theological truths, but because you're all split and divided. That's your problem. That's what tells me you're immature. And in fact, they Christianized their sin. 
They come in to the church um, exalting uh, with, with this idea that um, there were certain sages and certain wise men whose philosophical um, abilities or their um, their ability, their, their skill at rhetoric um, exalted them in their pagan Corinthian uh, culture. Well, when they came into the church, then they just started exalting and venerating Christian leaders. You're a great speaker. Wow, your skills at rhetoric are amazing. Wow, you're, you're a celebrity. You are actually with Christ. And they exalted them. So they took their, their former ideas, their pagan ideas, brought it into the church and just Christianized it. So instead of, um, exalting pagan philosophers, they just venerated Christian teachers. And Paul begins his letter to the Corinthian by correcting this issue. This is the issue. In fact, Paul doesn't waste a lot of time. He gets right to it. Verse 10, chapter 1. I pray that you would agree, that all of you would agree there would be no divisions. It's been reported to me that there are divisions amongst you. So Paul, right at the very beginning of this letter, says there's a problem in this church. The problem is that there's divisions amongst you, that you are exalting certain leaders over other leaders, and you have divided. There are factions. There are sect- You are sectarian in your, in, in your understanding, and we need to shut that down right now. So that's kind of where we, where a little bit of background on the book of 1 Corinthians. The people, just by way of review, the people of Corinth, the church, I should say the church at Corinth, not necessarily the people at Corinth, but the Christians in Corinth who were part of the church were boasting in men. Paul writes, he says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then over in chapter 1, verse 29, um, Paul writes this. He says, basically, um, you're boasting in humans. Stop boasting in these leaders. Stop boasting in humans. You are prideful and immature. So that's pretty much where Paul spends the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians is dealing with this division. And as I've stated before in, in messages in the past, that it seems interesting that Paul gives so much attention to this idea of division or to this sin of division. Um, no other topic in this letter does Paul spend that much time Significant time dealing with division. It's a huge issue. Division in the church um, indicates that you ain't so mature after all. Actually, you're a bunch of babies and it's time for y'all to grow up. That's my paraphrase. So today, Paul is really going to repeat a lot of the topics that he has dealt with. So he is going to, he's concluding this this portion of the of the letter he's he's concluding his chastisement about the divisions in the church and he's getting ready to wrap that up as we go forward we have one more week in this topic and then he's going to go forward and start talking about very specific issues in the church but right now he's wrapping that up and um i think today what we are going to see and perhaps maybe one of the main themes of this whole section, these first four verses, is this theme, let no one boast in men. And that's, we're going to kind of organize the message today around that idea, let no one boast in men. Basically, Paul's going to remind the Corinthian church that man's wisdom is foolishness, that man can add nothing to what is already yours in Christ. And that to exalt one person necessitates the diminishing another. And that's not your business. That's God's business. So that's kind of the direction that God or Paul is going to go. No one boasts in men. Men can add nothing to what Christ has already done. All right. So with that, join me as we read. I'll read First um, Corinthians chapter 3, 18 through 4, verse 5, and I would uh, ask that you would follow along with me as we listen to God's holy word. 
Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So Paul begins this, I guess, summary as he's beginning to summarize this, uh, his, his chastisement of the Corinthians. And he begins by saying, let no one deceive himself. I thought that was really interesting. Let no one deceive himself. And it's interesting to me because throughout the epistles, especially Paul's epistles, he will, um, regularly warn people not to be deceived. But that deception is external. Don't be deceived by false teachers. Don't be deceived by um, false prophets. Don't be deceived by that which is outside of you coming in. But let not your, um, don't deceive yourself. That's something that is happening from within the individual. It is internal. So this is a kind of a unique warning. Don't deceive yourself. In other words, the, the, the Christians here, the, the church, are aligning themselves with men, philosophers, sages, that they perceive as wise. And by aligning themselves with these perceived wise men, they, the church, then also thinks, well, we're wise because we're aligned with these wise guys. So if we're in the school of some, of, of some sage, then, and he's perceived as wise, then we also, by merit of his wisdom, are also seen as being smart and wise. And so Paul's like, on, yeah, that's deceptive. You're deceiving yourself. They think, and he says, don't deceive yourself. They think they're building with gold and silver and, and precious stones, but actually they're building with wood, hay, and straw, perishable things. If you need more context, go back and listen to last week's message. That will help you with that um, metaphor. And so they present themselves as wise, um, but Paul's saying, you don't fool God. God knows who are, who's truly wise. And the people and, and your actions prove that you're actually fools. This is how, I'm sorry, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Well, that's kind of interesting. Let me, before we go on, just remind ourselves of the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom as Paul is describing it in 1 Corinthians. You need to remember that Paul is not against wisdom per se. But the wisdom, um, the worldly wisdom that is plaguing the Corinthian church is a, it is a wisdom that eliminates or places secondary the cross of Christ. So the worldly wisdom is that which is a crossless wisdom. It attempts a relationship with God apart from the cross. That's the worldly wisdom. It is a crossless Christianity. And Paul is saying, no, first of all, there's no such thing as a crossless Christianity. And so therefore it can't be of any, in any way considered wise. And it is human wisdom that seeks to find, to discover with human means a relationship with God. 
but as Paul has described up till now, mankind in his own mind and in his own ability will never discover God on his own. You can read that in chapter 2. Paul's already dealt with that. And that's what he's talking about. It's not, are you wise or are you smart or any of those things. It's really dealing with a human wisdom which Paul considers worldly and foolish because it seeks to find God apart from divine revelation. It seeks to find God on its own. And hence, it never does. In fact, Paul in chapter 2 says, it's impossible. That's what he means. That's how we're describing worldly wisdom. It eliminates the cross of Christ. Divine wisdom, on the other hand, places the work of Christ at the center. So Paul says, that's why I came with you preaching Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing amongst you except Christ and Him crucified. That's what I'm placarding. That's what I'm putting forth. Christ and Him crucified. So if you want divine wisdom, you will only find divine wisdom in the revealed wisdom of God that He has made known to us, and that comes through Christ and Him crucified. And now, here's the thing. Paul is very blunt, or he's at least very open and honest. He said, now, this divine wisdom that puts Christ's front and center is going to be perceived of as foolishness by the world. The world will not see it as wisdom. The world will see your message of Christ and him crucified as foolishness, as stupid, as meaningless, as empty. So that's the thing. Which, Where are you going to be? You can go with worldly wisdom that appears smart and wise in the eyes of society, but it'll never bring you to God. Or you can look at Christ and Him crucified. This is the wisdom of God, but the world will perceive it as foolishness. This, these are the two uh, aspects that, that Paul is addressing. So... Boast not in men. Let no one deceive himself. There is a worldly wisdom and there is a divine wisdom. The divine wisdom will no doubt be seen as foolishness by the world. And he says this. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. All right? So if you're going to be wise in this age, the the age, the society, the, the, the culture will see you as a fool, and we see this throughout First Corinthians one, eighteen, um, Paul writes: "For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." So the word of the cross is what foolishness to those who are perishing, those who do not have the Spirit of God residing within them, who are not. Believers who are not saved, they will see that the, the message of the cross is foolishness. Verse, chapter 1, verse uh, 25, Paul continues on and he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the world will see the message of the cross, the gospel message, as foolishness. Being wise in the eyes of God means that you will believe things that the world considers absurd. To be wise in the eyes of God means that you will believe things that the world considers absurd. This is why when you share the gospel with your unbelieving friends and family, they look at you like you're out of it. Or they think, ah. Or if you go out on the streets and you you proclaim the gospel message, people will think that you are a nut job. They will say, So you're telling me that you believe in a talking snake and a man who was born from a virgin. Yeah, that's what you believe. And you actually believe that this guy walked on water and this guy fed like thousands of people with like two loaves of fish or two loaves of bread and a couple of fish. That's what you're telling me? That seems pretty foolish. And our response is, oh, it's not only that. Let me tell you what I believe. (laughs) 
I believe that this Jewish carpenter was the incarnate Son of God, whose bloody death on a Roman cross paid for my sins, and that this dead man rose from from the grave confirming that payment for my sin. I believe also that he's the Lord of the universe, and oh, I believe he's coming again. Yeah, you think it's foolish that I believe all those. Let me tell you how foolish I am. And yeah, that's insane. Why are we shocked when people say, well, I shared the gospel and they didn't, they didn't read. They thought you were a fool. Of course they did. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. To become wise in the eyes of God will mean that you are viewed as a fool in the eyes of the world. This is where Paul is going. So listen, there is a, there is a worldly wisdom that will make you appear to be somebody within the culture in which you live. But I am telling you that divine wisdom that comes from heaven, that is divinely revealed, is the true wisdom. But the world is so distorted in their thinking that they will perceive it as foolishness. That's where Paul's going. In fact, then he says, listen, let me tell you about the wisdom of men. It is foolishness with God. In fact, then Paul ends up using two Old Testament passages to demonstrate that human wisdom is foolishness with God. The first one is Job chapter 5 verse 13 where he says, for it is written, verse 19 here, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Oh, wise men of this world are sly, they are crafty. But no matter how cunning, God catches them in their own devices. Perhaps a great biblical example is Haman. You can read about Haman in the book of Esther. But Haman was a crafty, sly individual. And he despises a man by the name of Mordecai because Mordecai had the gall to stand up to him. And so Haman devised a plan. First of all, I'm going to kill all of the Jews. I'm not just going to kill Mordecai, who's a Jew. I'm going to kill everybody who's a Jew. But Mordecai, I got special plans for Mordecai. I have a gallows. I have a hanging tree that I have constructed. It is huge. And I am going to put Mordecai on that. And all of the city will see what a horrible man he is. And the Lord catches Haman in his own deception. And Haman is the one hung on the hanging tree, not Mordecai. Mordecai is exalted. This is a classic example of God catching the wise in their own deceit. They're sly. They think they know what they're doing. They think they've got one up on God. But God catches them in their own craftiness. So why would you put your trust in human wisdom that God says is useless? In fact, I just use it for my own purposes anyways. The schemes of men only lead to destruction. And he says this, he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. That is, they're empty. The Lord knows the thoughts of men. We see this throughout the ministry of Christ, Jesus knowing their hearts, Jesus knowing their thoughts. He knows what's going on. It's not like we can deceive God um, by any cunning. God's like going, yeah, I see your actions, but I know your heart. I know all that's going on inside of you. And so the schemes of men lead only to destruction. And God knows the unspoken uh, hearts of humans. So why are you trusting in this kind of wisdom? That makes no sense. That's Paul saying, that's actually, that's actually not wisdom, that's foolishness. Now let me make a clarification. And that is Paul is not encouraging Christians to be unthinking and neither are we. We're not saying when you come into the church doors, check your mind at the at the front door and leave your brain outside and then we're just going to fill you with a bunch of, I don't know, meaningless babble and then you can start thinking when you go back outside um, the door. You can pick your brain up. We've got it tagged and it'll be, your brain will be given back to you. Um, we don't mix those. We don't want to get those mixed up. Paul's not saying that. Check your brain at the church door. Many people accuse Christians of that very thing. Well, you guys just, you know, turn off all logic, all reason, all thinking, and you just believe. Paul's not saying that, and he's not encouraging it, and neither are we. I will say this. 
in one's search for God, human reason is the wrong instrument. We talked about that a while back. If you want to discover God, who God is, it will not, he will not be discovered through human reason. Why? Because it's just the wrong instrument. I think John Piper said this well. He said, you might be able to get to the moon with human wisdom, but you will never get right with God. So when it comes to um, psychology and sociology and, and, and medical science, these are all great tools. They will just never get you into a right relationship with a holy God. That is divine wisdom and that is divinely revealed. All of those things are good. Like Dr. Piper says, you can get to the moon on human wisdom, but you will never know the Lord who created the moon. So, attempts to draw near to God apart from divine revelation leads to futility and destruction and hence boast not in man. What are you doing boasting in man? They can't help you. Christ and Him crucified, that's our message. And then Paul goes into this really uh, really challenging uh, his thinking here is very challenging. I will do my best. I will also try to keep it fairly brief because it can get... um, um, it can get involved. He says, verse 21, So let no one boast in men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you're Christ and Christ is God's. I, I think I, I, in your notes I put, do you know whose you are? Do you know who's, who to whom you belong? Do you know the value that God has placed upon you. I, that's kind of where you're going. I think what Paul is saying here is that you're thinking too small. Let me begin with this. Don't you know all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas? See, Paul's now flipping the narrative. What were the Corinthians saying? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. And Paul is saying, wait a second, you're thinking way too small. You misunderstand everything. You're not wise. You're actually fools because your thinking is all wrong. You have claimed that we're of Paul, we're of Cephas, we're of Apollos, but Paul says you don't belong to us. We belong to you. The apostles are, you don't, you are not owned by an apostle. The apostles have been given for your good. In other words, God has given us apostles has given us, the apostles, for your joy. The church is not the property of the apostles, but the apostles are servants of the church. So when you claim, I'm of Paul, you're saying, what? That doesn't make any sense. You don't belong to us. We belong to you. We serve you. That's our job. We are yours. We've been given by God for your benefit, for your edification to serve you. We're not exalted, and you're down here trying to align yourself with us. We're down here. We're serving you. You're thinking way too small. You're limiting yourself by clinging to only one minister. Don't you realize that Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and all of God's people um, have been gathered together for your good? You're way, way limiting this. And so Paul flips the narrative. And then he goes on and he says, don't you know that all things are yours? And this gets a little interesting. He says, not only do we, the apostles, serve you by God's grace, but all things have been given by Christ to you for your joy. All things. So, in other words, you don't belong to this life as though that's all there is. Death does not have its final authority over you. You are not in bondage to the present. You are not in bondage to things to come. Those things are, basically, you are over all of those things. Maybe a good place to go. Maybe when I read that, some of you thought, that sounds a lot like Romans 8. And it does sound a lot like Romans 8. First of all, 
I'll begin with Romans 8, 17. Paul writes, I'll go to 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So first of all, if you are in Christ, you are an heir. You are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then you are an heir. That is, you are an inheritor of all that belongs to God. All that belongs to Christ is now yours. Life and death and things to come, things present. All of these things are yours. And then in Romans chapter 8, I'll go to verse 38. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Life is yours because Christ is our life. Death is ours because it doesn't conquer us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And because you belong to Christ, the things of Christ are yours. And because Christ controls all things, They are yours who are in Christ. So there is no place for division. Why boast in the wisdom of men when Christ has purchased the universe and you're an heir of Christ? What are you dividing over? It's Christ and Him crucified. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God who is sovereign over all. So ultimately the wisdom of this age is foolishness. Why? Because human reason never discovers God. Human wisdom neglects the riches that are found in being joint heirs with Christ. Divine wisdom has the cross at its center. So Paul is bringing his, his, uh, his message of the, the foolishness of divine wisdom in the eyes of men, but, the, but that human wisdom is actually um, not going to draw you any closer to God at all. And then Paul goes on in chapter 4, he says, Now this is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So Paul now reminds his readers, let me remind you who we truly are. Yes, we are apostles, or I'm an apostle, Cephas is an apostle, Apollos was not, but let me just describe to you who we are. First of all, we are servants. And this is a rather interesting word for for servant here. Um, There are probably at least three words that are often translated as servant um, in Scripture. There might be more, but um, but this one here has to do, originally had to do with an under rower. That is, somebody who was below deck rowing a ship. Um, and it came to mean an assistant who follows orders. And so he's saying, we're servants, we're ministers, we're under a Lord, and we have no inherent authority on our own. Why are you boasting about who we are? We have no in- inherent authority of our own. We just row the boat. That's what we do. The, the, the boss says, row, we row. The boss says, turn left, we turn left. That's what we do. We are under rowers. We are servants. We have no inherent authority. Christ is our Lord. He commands us. He compels us. So why are you saying, listen, I follow Paul. Really? You follow a slave who rows a boat? That's not very bright. Follow Christ who owns the ship and owns the sea on which the ship floats and owns the wind that moves the ship along. You belong to Christ. But he says not only are we servants, but we're stewards. This is a this is a very interesting statement because a steward here was usually the a household slave, and usually had a very it was a pretty high position within the household. Um, basically, he would og- oversee and organize the household operations, so he would make sure that the house operates correctly and that everybody's doing their jobs. The other thing he might have he would probably have great responsibility. He would probably pay everybody. All right. He would be entrusted with the owner's resources. You can write checks. You can buy property. You can make investments. You are to make certain that all the other servants are paid. 
In other words, you have access to all of my resources now. You will be held account to how you distribute those resources. So Paul's saying we are stewards. We distribute the assets of our master, and we will give an account to how we distributed those assets. And we see that in some of the parables of Jesus, like the unjust steward who acted, as it said, unjustly. And so we are, listen, listen, we are under authority. We have no inherent authority of our own, but we have been entrusted with great riches and we will be held account to how we distribute those riches. And so we are, this is how you should think of us. We are servants. We have no inherent authority. You should also know that we are stewards, that we have been entrusted with great wealth and we will be held account to how we distribute that wealth. Now, the wealth that Paul is referring to is not gold and silver. It is not precious stones. It is not rubies. It is not Bitcoin. It is, however, the gospel. We have been, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Chapter 2 describes the mysteries of God being the gospel. The mysteries of God being the gospel that Christ has been foreshadowed in the Old Testament and now that has been made known, salvation revealed in Christ had been seen in in shadows and types in the Old Testament, but now he has been made known. We We are stewards of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and he rose again. That is, our sins have been covered. They've been cast upon Christ. He rose again, assuring us that that payment was sufficient. We're stewards of that. That's what we're stewards of, not material wealth. We are stewards of the gospel. And we are the stewards of distributing this truth. The gospel then are the riches of God who has now assigned us to distribute that to the world. So we go around with the gospel, compelled by Christ, under his authority, distributing the the beauty and the treasure of the gospel message to all whom Christ assigns us to tell it to. And what is the requirement? What is our requirement? Our requirement is not, our requirement is to be faithful. A steward's responsibility was to be faithful with what the, the master assigned him. So listen, we are to be faithful It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. How we handle these riches as stewards will be called to account by the owner. One day, Christ will call us to account as to how we distributed his wealth and the beauty of his message. That's who we are. So consider us as servants. We're under authority of Christ and we are household managers We distribute the wealth of the master to all that he calls us to tell. And we will be held to a high standard because he will one day call us home and say, how did you distribute my assets? What did you do with the wealth that I gave you? Paul's saying that's how you should. So when we came to you, we didn't come to you in in superiority as though we're some great thing. No, we came to you as distributing the assets that the that the master said, give this much to these people. Give this this wealth to the people of Corinth. That's what we did. That's all we did. So, Paul is saying, evaluate us properly. God has given us to you to faithfully and accurately distribute the riches of his saving work in Christ. Don't exalt us. We just come delivering the message. I pray that we've done it faithfully. And then Paul says this. He says, um, but, verse 3, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of proper judgment. Um, And we need to be, this is where context is important because if we miss the context here, we can just pervert this passage of text beyond 
recognition. So let's be very careful because somebody might pull this passage out and say, wait a second. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Who are you? One of the big mantras of today is, who are you to judge me? In other words, I can live however I want and you can't say anything. That's not what Paul is talking. Paul is not saying that we could do whatever we wanted. We could become believers and then live immoral lives in your midst. And that would be okay. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is very specific. He is saying that what we are going to be judged on, the judgment that we are going to be held to account for is how we distributed the owner's assets. That's what I'm saying. I'm Paul is saying, listen, we came to you distributing the gospel. I believe we did a good job at it. Now, you may think we did a horrible job, but whether you think we did a horrible job or not means nothing. God will decide. I think we've done a pretty, Paul's then would say, I think we've done a pretty good job. I don't know of anything against myself. I don't think that we have failed in this, but that doesn't acquit me. Ultimately, I will stand before God Almighty and he will say, how did you distribute the assets that I gave you? This isn't about how we live our lives in general. This is about how did you proclaim, how did you fulfill the task that I gave you to do? So, Paul begins, he's saying, human judges are limited. And this is probably important in light of, if you've read 2 Corinthians, you know that in 2 Corinthians, um, the Christians in Corinth don't have a high view of Paul. They have uh, replaced Paul with what are what we term as super apostles. They are great speakers. They are eloquent. They're good looking. Um, they charge a fee. See, in those days, a good philosopher who is worth anything charged a certain fee. And the higher the charge, the better you were perceived to be, the wiser you were to be perceived to be. So Paul comes along and he charges them nothing. And so they go, well, I guess his message is worthless. That's where the chorus... So Paul is saying, listen, I'll put it in a more modern... I don't really care what you think. That's what he's saying. I, who am I? I don't care what you think about me. You're fallible. You may think that I am this short, ugly, unimpressive, poor speaker, bad at rhetoric, unwise rube. And I don't really care. See, that's not my job. My job is to distribute the assets that God has given me. That's what I've done. I don't care if you think I've done a good job. Because human judges are flawed. And no human judgment is final. But then Paul goes even further. He's going, and and I don't think I've done anything wrong. My conscience is clear. But not even that acquits me. We've heard it said that a a good conscience is a soft pillow. Paul's saying, "Uh uh-uh. God's the ultimate judge. My motives will be made clear on the day of the Lord. I myself, my, my conscience could be hardened. I could be blind to my own selfishness. I don't think I've done anything wrong amongst you, O Corinthians. And I don't really care what you think. And my conscience is clear, but that doesn't acquit me. God is my judge and I will stand before him one day. And he will call into account what I have done. My conscience, Paul realizes, is deceptive. In fact, Paul, even at one point in his life, um, considered himself blameless before the law. Before the law. In, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, according to the law, I was blameless. And then Christ appears to him and he goes, oops. His conscience was clear as a Pharisee. I'm good. I, my conscience is clear when I arrest Christians and have them sentenced to death. I'm good. I had no problem with Stephen being killed. I held coats for people. My conscience is clear. So Paul knows that his conscience can be deceptive. Because he met the risen Christ who revealed to him the depths of his heart. And he's going, oh no. 
Paul once considered himself blameless before the law and he thought he was righteous, but he was wrong. Listen, folks, if your compass is incorrectly calibrated, you will get lost and never know it. Paul's going, man, I had a a poorly calibrated compass and I was going off in a direction I thought was correct and I was wrong. The Lord is my judge. The Lord will judge me. Paul is not saying I can live however I want and I'll just leave it up to the Lord. You don't want that. How many of your unbelieving friends, when you talk to them about some of their actions, their ideas, their thoughts, you say, hey, the Lord will judge me. Yeah, the, the proper response to that is you don't want that. Yeah, that's a bad place to be. Paul is talking about, did we perform the job of a steward adequately? Did we take the wealth of the gospel and give it to you in the right way, in the proper, in the, in the proper manner? Did we do that? And I think we did. So I don't really care what you think, but ultimately I will stand before the Lord in regard to that task. So, Paul says, Listen, the Lord's coming again and he will bring to light what is hidden. Human opinion will not matter. You will not be able to stand and say, well, we thought Paul, well, my opinion of Paul was, God will say, I don't really care what your opinion of Paul was. He was my messenger and he brought the message faithfully. I don't care what you think. I don't care if he was short and bald and had an awkward nose, some biographical accounts of Paul put him in that light and that he was a poor speaker and that he was bold, you know, when he wrote, but he was timid and weak in person. I don't care what you think of my servant. He came and he distributed my assets in accordance with my plan and he did it accurately. And likewise, Paul says, when the Lord comes again, I will stand before him as my judge. And then Paul goes on, he says, um, Then, on the day of the Lord, the Lord will disclose the purposes of the heart, and then each one will receive his commendation before God. He will receive praise from God. Now, you and I might not think that's that big of a deal. We might think, really, all you get is an, a, an attaboy from God? But in a in um, ancient society, praise from a superior was one of their highest goals. To be praised by a king would have been one of the greatest accolades one could ever have. One of the greatest treasures a person could have would be praised from a superior. And now Paul is saying we will be receive a commendation from the Lord of the universe. The highest accolade, the highest payment I could ever receive would be the praise of God for doing what he has called me to do. Praise bestowed honor and blame bestowed dishonor. Paul's saying, then we will receive our commendation from God. The Corinthians sought to praise various apostles. Paul finds no value in human praise. He finds value in the praise of God. Listen, I'm of Paul. I don't care. That doesn't puff me up. I want to hear something from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. Not, man, you're a great preacher. So, this is where Paul is... Is going. I, I hope that some of this um, makes sense. So, a couple things as I close today. I want to encourage you. I want you to encourage you to become a fool in the eyes of this world, to hold fast to the message of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. People are going to look at you like you're out of it. I want you to know you are the wise person. Here's the other thing, folks. We've been entrusted with great wealth. We have great wealth. Salvation by grace through faith. That Christ has died for our sins. We have, I guess you could say, a pearl of great price. We have treasure. And we have been called to distribute it. So we should do so faithfully. I'm going to conclude with a fairly lengthy quote. It's a book that some of us are are reading together. It's this nice little book called What is the Gospel? It is a worthwhile book. But we talked about this in one of our groups the other night, and I thought, man, that's really good. I'm going to use it. See if I can find it. 
So there we go. Dr. Gilbert, who wrote the book, writes this. He says, but really, we should just face it. The message of the cross is going to sound like nonsense to people around us. It's going to make us Christians sound like fools. And it most certainly is going to undermine our attempts to, quote, relate to non-Christians and prove to them we're really just as cool and harmless as the next guy. Christians can always get the world to think they are cool right up to the moment they start talking about being saved by a crucified man. And that's where coolness evaporates, no matter how carefully you've cultivated it. Even so, Scripture makes it clear that the cross must remain center at the center of the gospel. We cannot move it to the side. We cannot replace it with any other truth as, as the heart, center, and fountainhead of the good news. To do so is to present the world with something that is not saving and that is therefore not good news at all. The Bible actually gives us very clear instruction on how we should respond to any pressure to let the cross drift out of, our, out of the center of our gospel. We are to resist it. Look at what Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians. He knew the message of the cross sounded at best insane to those around him. He knew they would reject the gospel because of it, that it would be a stench in their nostrils. But even in the face of that sure rejection, he said, we preach Christ crucified. In fact, he resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's because he put it at the end of the book. The fact that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture was not just important, not even just very important. It was of first importance. And what if that brings the ridicule of the world? What if that brings the ridicule of the world? What if people respond better to a gospel tilted toward the renewal of the world instead of toward the death of Christ in place of sinners? What if people laugh at the gospel because it's about a man dying on a cross? So be it. Paul said, I'm preaching the cross. They may think it's ridiculous. They may think it's foolish, but I know the foolishness of God is wiser than the, man, the wisdom of man. So we preach Christ and him crucified. It is foolishness to the world. I would encourage you as you go about your week to preach Christ and him crucified. Yes, people will think that you are insane. But you have great wealth. You have great riches. Distribute it faithfully as God has called you. Lord, we come before you this day. We praise you. We thank you for the wonderful truths that Christ died for our sins and that he rose again, that he's coming again. We thank you that we are heirs of Christ, that all things uh, uh, that he possesses are ours because we're his. We thank you for the wisdom that you've given us. So have mercy on us this day. Grant us grace. In Christ's name, amen.